0: Thank you Asha, Elena, and Grace for reading those words from Romans 14. If all that you heard was some advice about whether you should eat meat or not, you missed it. And I invite you to turn to Romans 14 later today. Read it again. It's for how we walk together as we wrestle with the questions of what does it mean for me to be faithful to what God has called me to? What does it mean for you to be faithful for what God has called you to? And that together, we are servants of the same king, servants of the same God, working for his glory and for the sake of the kingdom of God, what we have been calling this cross-shaped community in which we center ourselves in Jesus Christ. Now, before I get into the the message for today, I want to mention a couple of things about Eden Healthcare Services uh, that we heard from this morning. One is that that list that Al shared with us of people from his congregation that have been part of Eden Healthcare Services was quite extensive, and yet... Al missed a few names. I'm not going to mention those because I'm probably going to miss a few. I know of at least two or three more people that have served with Eden Healthcare Services and have been a part of this. I really encourage you after the service today to go and be part of that Faith Formation class and to hear about how you as an individual and how we as a church can support and walk alongside this valuable ministry. But there's another aspect as well that I want to remind you of or let you know about. And that is that we as a church are part of the care program through Eden Health Care Services and Recovery of Hope. If you are someone who struggles with your mental health or you need some support, we as a church welcome you, invite you to contact Recovery of Hope, You tell them that you're a part of our congregation and there is support there financially to go through some of the the services and counseling that you may need. There's a card on the uh, Church Life Center that explains a little bit about that or you can come and talk to one of the pastoral team and we would be happy to point you in the right direction. Now, this morning we heard this text from Romans 14. And I've entitled the sermon this morning, We Are Lepers. The full title of the sermon is, We Are Lepers in a World That Needs Healing. Where where do I get this title from? Well, it comes from a chapter here in this book, Stuck Together, which we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks here. This idea that Nelson Crable brings out that the hope of Christian witness is what will bring us together in a polarized world. Last week, we were so privileged to have Paul Dirksen come and share with us about how we understand this this movement towards being a people united in Christ. And he gave us some great ideas of how we can live that out day to day. In Luke chapter 17, there's a story when Jesus, of Jesus encountering a group of 10 lepers. It's a really interesting story, and in, in the, in the, in the, the details are where it gets really, really interesting. It says in Luke chapter 17 that as Jesus was walking between Samaria and Galilee, he came to a village between Samaria and Galilee. Samaria, as you may know, was was the area of the outcasts, those who had compromised their faith historically and were no longer living as faithful Jewish people. Galilee was part of the Jewish nation. Those were the faithful people. And yet here in between is a village. Who lives in a village between nations? Those who don't fit in either one. And who is it that didn't fit? The lepers. People who had leprosy and were outcasts from their society. And here Jesus runs into a group of these lepers. Most people would avoid those who have leprosy because they were considered unclean. And what does Jesus do instead? Jesus moves towards them. And Jesus heals them. And these 10 lepers are so joyful that they have been healed and they can now rejoin their communities. And they off they go to show the priests that they've been healed. But one, one turns around and comes back and praises God and says, thank you for this healing. And Jesus asks the question, weren't there 10 of you? What happened to the other nine? Why didn't they come back and praise God and give thanks for the healing that they have received? I think often we read these stories and we place ourselves somewhere in the story that's favorable to us. We're, you know, we're an invisible someone on the shoulder of Jesus watching this all unfold. Or maybe we count ourselves as one of the disciples, those faithful ones who are following along with Jesus. I consider that most often in these stories, we learn best when we place ourselves in the position of those who are receiving healing, those who are in need of healing And recognizing that even when we do receive healing, even when we have experienced the ministry of Jesus in our lives, so often we neglect to give thanks to God and proclaim his goodness, but we just go on our way. You and I are lepers in a world that needs healing. Kathy said something in the prayer this morning that that caught my ear. In a world that seems to have gone wrong, I may have gotten that wrong, but in a world that seems to have gone its own way, that's off track, We know and we recognize our need for God. And sometimes we're tempted to think that the world today that we live in is messed up in a way that it has never been messed up before. It's worse than it has ever been. Those of you who study history will know that history has this cycle thing that goes on. It goes through times when things are pretty good and times when things are really bad and it just seems to go and go and go. And it may be good for some people in some places while it's bad for others in other places at the same time. As we consider how we can be a cross-shaped people, a community held together by the person of Jesus Christ, one of the things that we turn to is the example and teaching of Jesus to help us understand how it is that we can live in the midst of our diversity, in the midst of the differences that we have, even here among us in this congregation. How is it that we can be united and walk and serve together in a time when there are such big questions and such big differences between us? Well, the truth is that Jesus lived in a polarized society as well. The time of Jesus was a time when the people of Israel, the Jewish people, were divided in all kinds of ways, and they had what Crabill calls factions among them, and they did not get along, and they all thought that the other one was wrong. Here's some of those different factions that you had happening at that time. You had the Herodians, named after King Herod, the, the king who was Jewish but not quite Jewish but he was a collaborator with Rome and you had those that said well this is the world we live in this is how we have to get along so we do what we need to and some of them were tax collectors and some of them you know would cooperate fully and even participate in some of the religious things that the Romans did. You had also the Sadducees which whenever I hear that word I keep thinking of that kids song they're sad you see well that doesn't get us anywhere but it's still there the sadducees were the religious rulers the chief priests those who ran the institutions of the people of the jewish nation they debated and they they taught or they debated in the temple with Jesus, and Jesus was constantly speaking to questions, and they tried to trick Jesus and get him to admit that he was wrong. They had questions like, you remember this one about, well, if there's a man who is married, and then his his brother's wife dies, and and then he has to marry his brother's wife to fulfill the law, and then that wife Dies And then he has to marry another sister. And it turns out there's seven sisters that he ends up marrying. Uh, When they get to heaven, which one is he married to? Questions like this. They're trying to show why Jesus just didn't have the right kind of teaching. But their concern was about making sure that the institutions and the control that they had over the people through those religious institutions was not jeopardized. A third faction was the Pharisees. We've heard of them many times. The Pharisees were religious idealists. They taught and they knew the scripture and they lived out according to the rules that they thought the Scriptures had, but so often they had completely missed the point of why Scripture taught those things, and Jesus called them out. A fourth faction in Jesus' time was a group called the Essenes, and there were various groups like the Essenes. These were those who chose to withdraw from society. They went and they lived in the desert, in the caves or far away from the cities because it was all corrupt and they wanted nothing to do with it. They thought it was better to just withdraw. A fifth faction in Jesus' day was, someone, was a group called the Zealots. A zealot is someone who is zealous. They are the fanatics. They were the radical resistance fighters who were trying to get rid of the Romans by any means necessary, including killing as many of them as they could in the name of their God. This is the community that Jesus was a part of. All of these factions They all saw the world in different ways, and they thought their way was the right way. So how did Jesus go about living in that kind of a polarized society? Well, it's interesting, because when you look at Jesus' disciples and those who are around Jesus and his followers, you realize that one of his disciples, Matthew, had been a tax collector, a collaborator, and a Herodian. Jesus engaged with the Sadducees time and time again, even though they were constantly looking for reasons to get rid of him and kill him. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night to hear more about what Jesus was teaching. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Paul, the apostle, was also a Pharisee. John the Baptist was very similar and taught in many of the same ways that the Essenes did, lived outside of the society and called people to an uncompromised faith. And among the disciples, there was one of them called Simon the Zealot, who had been one of those nationalistic rebels and resistance fighters. Somehow, in the midst of this polarized society, Jesus continued to be in relationship with and called into his fellowship, his circle, those who were in each of these different places. When we think of our own times today, I think we can recognize that there are various factions among us as well. Craybill lists five different kinds of factions that he sees in North American society, and he's writing from an American context, which is a little bit different, and perhaps you would modify some of this or maybe add some of your own factions. He identifies those who are Christian nationalists who say, we are a Christian nation. We are the ones who ought to be at the center of things and control the direction of government. Our norms ought to be prioritized above all others. You have those who are social justice activists who are fighting for the causes of the day and for marginalized people, indigenous people, persons of color, immigrants, the LGBTQ+, healthcare, gun control, whatever it is, we gotta fix this broken system. And that's what we're doing. He identifies as a third faction, those who are part of what he calls Family values Christians, those who are fully engaged in the culture wars. They, are, they love the idea of biblical authority on marriage and sexuality, on Christmas and feminism. And that has to apply to all of our society. And we respond by protecting our children, by homeschooling them or putting them in private schools so that these views that are at the heart of of the scriptures can be upheld. He identifies those whom he calls mission conservatives or mission-focused conservatives, those for whom evangelism and preaching the gospel and saving souls is the only real priority. We got to get people into the kingdom of heaven and got to worry about their souls. This world's all going to go anyway, so don't worry about that. It's only about what's happening in a spiritual sense. And those whom he calls mission-focused liberals, for whom it's all about confronting the powers and promoting peacemaking and care for creation, welcome and inclusion with Jesus as an example and teacher, but not as Lord." Now, I've given you these as very clear-cut cutouts, uh, and I'm sure you can poke holes in many of the things that I've said, but you you get the idea of these different pressures and tensions that we have going on even within our own Christian context. How do we move forward as a people of God as a community of the kingdom of God, united by the cross of Jesus, when we have all of these tensions pulling in different directions. As we do time and time again, we come back to the question, well, how did Jesus do this? And if we can follow how Jesus did this, then maybe we have a place to begin. So, how did Jesus interact with the factions, the people on the different extremes of his day? As we read the gospel stories, we hear of himself, of Jesus inviting himself to the home of Zacchaeus, a tax collector. He invites himself to the home of a Pharisee. He moves towards them. He engages in meals with them. He has frank conversations. He doesn't shy away from the important questions, but he challenges their way of seeing the world and points to a different way, a God-centered way. We read in the stories, like with Nicodemus, how he met one-on-one with those who had questions and had deep conversations Inviting them to consider what God had in store for them. And he called people from wherever they were to come and walk with him, to be with him as he taught, as he ministered, as he reached out to the needs of the people around him and invited them to share in the mission of God's kingdom that he was enacting. In all of these things, Jesus always maintained relationship. He reached across the divide, always moving towards people rather than away. As we know, from the Gospel story moving towards those, even those who were completely opposed to him, had a high price, which Jesus gladly bore so that the kingdom of God would be advanced. So how do we take something like this and apply it in our lives? One of the basic things that we must do if we are to engage with the society that we live in is that we must learn to listen well. Hear these words from Craybill in this book. He says, listening well is at the heart of this. Because even in the current political environment, he's talking here primarily about politics, if you listen well, you learn that there's a huge overlap between what the different sides want. Good schools for children, sufficient income, adequate housing, quality medical care, and safe neighborhoods. We all want those things. But we may think differently about how to achieve those things. But it is in listening well that we will move forward. When we have conversations with those around us, when we have conversations with those for within our congregation with those who are different than us and see things differently, there are two different kinds of conversations that we can have. One is what we would call formal conversation. This is more the public kind of thing, where we we look for common ground together, we make agreements on what we can share and what we cannot, and we define the relationship with one another. The second kind of conversation is just as or even more important than the formal. That is the informal conversation. That is the simple, quiet, out-of-the-spotlight, heart-to-heart, honest conversations with one another. Like Nicodemus in the dark with Jesus. One of the reasons that these heart-to-heart conversations are so important is because that is where we learn who people really are. And what it is that is truly on their hearts. And you never know in those conversations, in the small things, where your questions of one another and that deep listening will make a difference. In this book, Crabill talks about a time when he was a student in seminary. And on one day in the seminary that he was at, they had a... a a chaplain from the army come, and this was in the days of nuclear proliferation, if you remember that, back in the 80s. And this chaplain was defending the work of the army in providing peace through strength. And Krable, as a, as a pacifist, was so, so tremendously worked up about it. He went and he, he asked for a conversation with that chaplain, and through that conversation, they kind of went around, you know, the usual things, just war theory and some other things, and how to moderate. And he learned in that conversation that there is nuance here. There is, really is a desire for peace, but this is how he's approaching it. But then, a few years later, he found out that that same chaplain who had risen to be the head chaplain of the United States Army, resigned his position and stepped away and became one of the leading nuclear activists, calling on governments to step away from this terrible, dehumanizing weapon. You never know how these small conversations will impact. Valerie Carr, who we may have heard of, Has someone who is calling people into these kinds of listening relationships, she says that we risk being changed by what we hear. She says that the most critical part of listening is asking what is at stake for the other person. And she goes on to say this, which I think impacted me and I think is something that we need to hold on to. The goal of listening is not to feel empathy for our opponents or to validate their ideas or even to change their mind in the moment. Our goal is to understand them. What are the deep needs and experiences that shape the perspectives of others around us? Listening well to one another does not grant it legitimacy. She says it grants it humanity and preserves our own humanity in the process. Let's turn back to the scriptures for a few moments. When Jesus sends out the disciples in Matthew 10, he sends them out to minister and he tells them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves to find people of peace and enter their homes and stay with them. The Apostle Paul, as he reaches out into the Roman and Greek world, says that we must participate in the world as it is, but with caution and discernment. That is the text that we read in Romans 14. Do you eat this meat or don't you? And what does that mean? And at the heart of it, he says, Don't judge someone who discerns differently than you do because they are trying to do the same thing that you're trying to do, and that is to be faithful to God. The, the, the disciple John, who wrote the book of Revelation from exile in Patmos, calls on us to consider living as a countercultural people that brings witness to a corrupt world. Krabel suggests that we have a model to work from as the church. He suggests that the, re- the, the picture of the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21 is a fantastic place to start. Because in J- the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, we find, first of all, that God's people are focused on what's at the center of the new Jerusalem, which is the presence of God, and that what makes us different falls away as we focus on him. He also says then that the faith community has no boundaries in the Jew Jerusalem. The gates are always open to welcome others in. In the New, Jeru- in the New Jerusalem, there's no elitism or inequality. Everyone, whether you were a king or whether you were a pauper, they all walk the same golden streets and all bring the same praise to God. And that in this place, this picture of, the, of what the church is calling us to as kingdom people, the water of life proceeds from the throne of God bringing restoration to all of humanity. Let us end by looking again at the words from Romans 14. Paul says, Let us, therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification so that we may be a kingdom people a cross-shaped community for God together. We're going to end the sermon time today with a little bit different thing. We're going to take a minute for you to turn to one another and consider the question that's on the screen. There's actually a second question for those of you who'd like to go to step or level two. When was the time that you assume, someone you assumed would be hostile turned out to be open to conversation? I invite you to turn to one another for, for a moment and share. And then we will go into our next part of worship today.